So Saul, as he is then called, again, he's only renamed Paul later, Saul has been zealously tracking down and violently suppressing Jewish followers of Jesus, right? He set out from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria to bind up these believers and bring them back for a religious inquisition of sorts. As he's nearing the Syrian city, breathing threats and murder against the disciples, Acts says, he is struck by a blinding light and he falls to the ground and hears an unfamiliar voice putting him into question, calling him into a radically new way of being. Now up to this point, up to this moment, Saul was living a pretty good life. As he writes in various other letters in the New Testament to uh, the early churches, he was from a family of privilege, of the prized tribe of Benjamin, as Hebrew as a Hebrew could be, he says. He had received an elite education under Gamaliel, one of the most famous teachers in that region of that era, surpassing many of his peers in the process. He was well-placed to rise in the ranks and become an influential religious and political leader until his encounter with the spirit of the risen Christ stops him in his tracks. And in this moment, on the Damascus Road, Saul goes from being a take-charge kind of person to one who must depend on another to show him the way forward. In what had to be a, a humbling, even humiliating transformation, he is led to join the very movement that he has been violently tracking down and persecuting, ridiculing. Right? Think about this for a moment. The cost of such a dramatic change. You're what now? Becoming one of them? People would have asked. Right? It would have meant the loss of family and friends and colleagues, mentors. Basically, the entire network uh, network of love and support that Paul had built at both personal and professional levels up to that point. Saul is climbing the ladder of success and respect. He is building the good life when he had an encounter with the risen Christ from which he would never fully recover. And in fact, while he, he now occupies a privileged place in our scriptures, during his lifetime, Paul's relationship with Peter and James, with those disciples of Jesus and those leaders in the early church movement, that relationship remained tense and even adversarial at times, which scripture itself bears witness to. And even more, when Saul became a follower of the way of Jesus, this new calling sent him on many dangerous voyages across the Mediterranean Sea, several of which ended in life-threatening shipwrecks and led him to spend several of his final years in prison before be most likely being gruesomely executed like Stephen, like Peter and others, all at the hands of the same powers of Rome, the state that crucified Jesus. As I've emphasized before, it's, it's important to acknowledge in this process here, this scripture here, that Saul who becomes Paul 
isn't converting from Judaism to Christianity. That's not what this passage is about, although it's what's been preached many times. This story is not about how Christianity supersedes or is better than Judaism. The Jesus movement at this time was a thoroughly Jewish movement, right? People still held to many of the Jewish uh, religious and cultural customs of the day. So Paul isn't converting from one religion to another. Rather, this is a story about the threat of resurrection or how resurrection and the resurrected one seeks to meet us where we are to disrupt us where we've become complacent and threaten us with the possibility of true life. As I was thinking about this passage, this notion this week, it reminded me of a powerful set of lines from Todi Cade Bambara's novel, The Salt Eaters. Written in 1980, she's exploring the aftermath of the civil rights movement, the, the feminist and anti-war movements, and at the be as the story begins, there is this character named Minnie who is a fabled healer in the community. She's asking a dispirited movement veteran who is in need of healing, are you sure, sweetheart, that you want to be well? Just so as you're sure, sweetheart, and, and ready to be healed, because wholeness is no trifling matter, a lot of weight when you're well. You see, healing, true life, wholeness, it sounds nice, except that like Saul, it requires relinquishing the life or, or some aspect of it that we've, that we've known, or that's come to define us, or wherever it is getting in the way of real life, true life. True life for Saul did not mean Everything was peachy from there on out. That he had great health, that he was promised a long life of ease and comfort. Right, as scripture itself says, that's not the case. And as I mentioned earlier, in the ways that our society might measure the outcome of Paul's encounter with the risen Christ, you might say that Jesus wrecked his life. And yet... Paul goes on to proclaim, even amidst his sufferings, that he has found something greater. For Christ's sake, he writes, I regard all of that stuff that I used to prize, all that I've lost, as rubbish. Which, I love this English translation of the Greek word. I'm, I'm pretty sure it just is a polite British way, right, of interpreting the Greek word for dookie. Right? I count all of what I've lost as a giant pile of poop, he says. It's right there in scripture. I, I might even be softening it a bit too much still. All I want, he says, all I want is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings if that's what should come, becoming like him in his death so that I too may somehow attain resurrection from the dead so that as he says elsewhere so that it may no longer be me my ego that lives but the spirit of God who is alive in me 
See, Paul thought that he was living the good life until the risen Christ disrupted him with the threat of something better, something deeper, something more expansive that required a letting go of what was getting in the way. Let me ask you this morning, where is God threatening you with resurrection? Now, I know that doesn't really sound nice. We don't like that phrasing, but, but I, sometimes I think that we think we know this story so well that we need to be jolted out of our illusions. And I think this provocative poetic phrase, which comes from the Guatemalan poet, theologian, and human rights activist, Julia Esquivel, does just that. It makes you do a double take, like, wait, what? Threatened and resurrection, I don't, I don't feel like those should go together. But where is God seeking to disrupt your complacency and call you to something deeper? Where are you clinging to a, a death-dealing pattern or past when God is calling you to embrace a new pattern, a new form, a new future? That's one way I've been thinking about this notion of being threatened with resurrection this week. But unlike Saul on the road to Damascus, and more like Paul at the end of his life after shipwrecks and prison time and all of that, Esquivel herself writes her words from the underside of persecution's fist. Like Stephen last week, like Perpetua and Felicity and Again, many other early Christians who were violently persecuted and, and murdered by religious and political leaders. Esquivel writes about the threat of resurrection from amidst the death. For her, she writes, amidst the genocide of the indigenous Mayan people in Guatemala and the murder of anyone who stood in solidarity with them, including many priests and other church workers. Right? In 1980, from amidst the literal death and all of the other death-dealing forces that are part and parcel of warfare, she writes these seemingly absurd words. It is something within us that doesn't let us sleep, that doesn't let us rest, that won't stop pounding deep inside it, what keeps us from sleeping, is that they have threatened us with resurrection. Because every evening, though weary of killings, an endless inventory since 1954, yet we go on loving life and do not accept their death. Because in this marathon of hope, there are always others to relieve us, who carry the strength to reach the finish line which lies beyond death. Join us in this vigil, and you will know what it is to dream. Then you will know how marvelous it is to live threatened with resurrection, to dream awake, to keep watch asleep, to live while dying, 
and to know ourselves already resurrected. Friends, this is the testimony of our faith, the poetic truth, the promise on which we stand. That against all odds, all logic, all rational thinking, beyond death lies resurrection. And I think this is what Paul also came to know in those later years following his dramatic encounter with the risen Christ. And is what he too is trying to express when he explains how he could go from a person with privilege, from growing in power and status and reputation and authority, highly esteemed by others, how he could go from that to one who faced shipwreck and prison time and persecution and actually who was understandably looked at by other followers of Jesus with skepticism, as we see in this morning's scripture with Ananias, right? how he could experience this dramatic change change that our world, I think, would pretty well count as a bad thing, right? And still say that he considered all that he'd lost, all that he used to have, as a big pile of cow pie in comparison with the riches and the depth, with the true life that he'd now gained. Right? For weeks, we've been exploring what what resurrection could possibly mean for us, for our world, now as then. It can be easy in our world to equate the fullness of life that Jesus says he offers, to equate resurrection with, again, ease, everybody just having a good old time, good health, a 401k, some nice vacation. Not that any of these are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but that is not what our scripture ultimately testifies to as fullness of life, as resurrection. Instead, resurrection in Scripture insists on the seemingly absurd assertion that death will not have the last word in a world where death is constantly beating us down. It is an insistence that love and life and goodness and joy and community can be found among us even or especially when death threatens to reduce us to dust and ash. This isn't to deny the pain of death or how scary it is. It's not to, to minimize the suffering and injustice and the exploitation and the brutality of our world. If you haven't noticed yet, Every story of resurrection in scripture, like Esquivel's poem, it begins from the grief. It begins from the pain, from the fear, from the shame. And rather than running from it and re repressing it, the fear, the shame, the pain, rather than doing that, refusing to face it, resurrection comes from making the unthinkable leap of faith, moving somehow into and through it. And right there, 
discovering this generative life force at the heart of the universe that we call the Spirit of God, pulsing within us and from beyond us, drawing us forward, raising up our world to new life, even when and where we can't yet see it. Yes, I feel you. Many things may be coming to an end. Again, I don't want to minimize the weight of such grief and how suffocating it can feel. And this is not the end. Somehow both of those are true. The risen Christ, it's as though the risen Christ is always saying, take my hand. Let me lead you forward into and through it. Take my hand. There may be death all around, but death will not have the last word. It may seem as though all hope is lost, but this life force cannot be extinguished. There is something here that we call the Spirit of God that cannot be killed or silenced. And if the people whom God has called will not speak up, will not live threatened with resurrection, well, then God will use even the stones to cry out for life. If we can trust this to be true, enough to give ourselves to it, if we can find ourselves in communion with others on this journey, breaking bread together, bearing one another's burdens, bearing witness to one another's griefs along the way, if we can find others on this Damascus road, this Emmaus road, and trust one another, rather than allowing it to turn us against one another, if we can commit to journeying down this road together, which is what I believe it means to be the church, then the promise we receive is that the barren ground beneath our feet will become the seedbed where resurrection itself begins to grow, where new life is found. I don't claim to understand it all. I'm just bearing witness to what I've known even against my own fears. With Saul, with, with Minnie, and the woman who comes to her seeking healing, with Julia Esquivel and her Guatemalan compatriots, the question for us this morning, I think, is, are we willing to join them in this vigil? to live threatened with resurrection. Are you sure, church, that you want to be well? Just so as you're sure, beloveds, and ready to be healed because resurrection is no trifling matter. A lot of weight when you've been raised from the dead. May it be so for your resurrection, for our resurrection, 
for the resurrection of all the world. Amen.